This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. My first guest tonight is a taphophile. Now, if you are saying you have no idea what a taphophile is, that is okay. I'm reasonably sure you're not alone. Probably nobody other than taphophiles know what a taphophile is. But you may have got a hint because you may have read about him today in a story in the spec, a great piece written by Sarah Farr. He recovers lost headstones in cemeteries, grave markers that have been toppled over and then buried by dirt and grass and basically just the passing of time. Mike Brown is his name. Uh, Mike joins me now. Mike, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you for having me. Did you have any idea what a taphophile was until you became one? Uh, I'd heard the term because I've explored cemeteries for quite a while, but I've never used it to describe myself, not until I started doing this. I'm almost hesitant to ask, but why have you explored cemeteries before? <laughs> well, when I, my wife and I, we, our genealogy in Ontario goes back to the late 1700s. And so we have explored cemeteries looking for our ancestors. And, and you know, we occasionally cleaned up headstones. And just to let people know we've been there, we've planted annual bulbs. Mm. But it wasn't until last year that I started to actually do what I'm doing now, which is uncovering the, the headstones that I'm finding underground. Well, first of all, good thing that all of your exploration of cemeteries was on the up and up. We're, we're glad <laughs> to hear that right off the top. But how did you know? Okay, so you, you, even if you spend time, even if someone goes to the cemetery, they visit their loved one who's passed away or whatever other reasons like you had, how do you start to discover that there are headstones that are missing? Because if they're missing, you wouldn't know they're missing. That's true. And because some of these predate record keeping and, you know, predate confederation at some point, uh, there'd be no record of them at all. Um, in, in many cases, you can actually see, you know, a couple of square inches, but I've done it enough times now and I've done it uh, often enough that I can actually now I know what to look for, the divots in the ground, the strange weed patterns, that sort of thing. Uh, and then I just poke around for it. So really, it's gotten to the point now where I simply recognize where they could be, and then I just poke around with my knitting needle trying to find them. But how did you know in the first place that these things were there? Well, the very first one I uncovered last year, I happened to be wandering through the Hamilton, the Central Cemetery, and I noticed a strange patch of grass, and I dragged my foot across it and discovered there was a stone underneath it. Mm. I got got down on the ground and uncovered it, and I thought, well, this was this was pretty cool. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I'll come back occasionally and see if I can find another one. And I found another one, and then I realized that they're everywhere. And so I decided to put myself, put together a little kit for myself, and just make irregular trips. Whenever I had a free moment here or there, I would walk over or drive over and uh, and and see if I could find some. So you just literally just go to the cemetery and start poking around and digging around. Literally, I, I the ones that I find, I don't know that I'm actually going to find anything at all. I don't know. I'm not looking for anybody in particular. Um, I'm not looking. I'm not going to places where I know there's going to be a number of headstones. Uh, I don't know. For me, it's an adventure. It's, I guess, kind of like mining for headstones. You know, you never know what you're gonna what you're gonna find. Are they? Well, first of all, do you ever get any funny looks? Because I'm thinking someone at a cemetery who's starting to dig up earth. Uh, there may be a person or two who takes a funny look at you. I'm more surprised that nobody has stopped a guy walking around the Hamilton Cemetery <laughs> carrying a wooden stake in his hand. Because I literally am walking around with a stake in my hand. I'm like I'm something out of Buffy the Vampire. Um, most people paid no attention to me. Uh, it's, I, I mean, a lot of people may be uncomfortable. They don't know what I'm doing. For all they know, I'm tending to a family 
family headstone. Of course, sure. Uh, but occasionally somebody will walk past me and ask what I'm doing, and I'll have a chat with them. But more often than not, I get a you know I get a friendly nod, and the guys that actually work at the cemetery always wave to me. Well, they, now sure, the now they do. Is that they, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, now that they know what I'm doing, exactly, I'm yeah, not now that creeping around. Are they okay? So when you find them, when you are able to spot them, then it sounds like they're not very difficult to unearth. Most of them aren't. Uh, occasionally, I'll get one that's you know it's fallen over on an angle and it's a good six inches uh, underground. Um, but most of them are only two or three inches underground. So it it takes a bit of effort, and you have to be careful because I don't want to damage them in any way. Um, so I just mark them out and uncover them. Some of them are a breeze. But most of them take a bit of effort. I did one this afternoon that took three pailfuls of grass and dirt. And I'm using a giant uh, Home Depot bucket. So that's a considerable amount of earth that I had to excavate in order to get this headstone. And you've got to be careful, I assume, because these would all be older headstones. They're not recent. No. I've, the most recent I found was 1963, and that just happened to have been the one that I found when the spectator was talking to me. Prior, uh, other than that, most of them are 1920 and well before them. Um, so yeah, I have to be very, very careful because they're made of a very, they're made of a different material. I'm assuming limestone, that sort of a thing. So they're easy to scratch. They've already been underground for a while. They've worn because of rain and simple weather. Uh, so I do have to be very, very careful with them. Okay, so you you find the stone, you figure out where it's going to be. You've been able to figure it out by your experience now, how the grass is growing or the weeds, yep. as you described. You unearth it, you clean it off with just with brushes and things like that. I have plastic dish brushes, and I have some soft paint brushes, and I have a plastic card that I use to scrape away the scrape away the soil. I have the only thing that I use that would be could be damaging is the blade I use to cut the grass, but that that's never more than two or three inches from the or never closer than two or three inches from the headstone. So, so it's basically by hand with plastic tools and wooden tools. And so once you've cleaned them off then and taken some of the dirt off, what do you do with them? Uh, once I've cleaned them, I take a photograph of them, and then I log them on the website Find a Grave, which is part of Ancestry. And I do that with the hope that at some point, somebody someday will be searching for their family. And in a lot of cases, the well, so far, every single case of the headstones, there's no record of them on Find hmm. a Grave. Um, no record of and, the of the grave. Not on find a grave, and in many cases, I have no record of the people having ever existed. Wow! Until I start until I start to really, which is one of the reasons I do this. Um, but occasionally, like last week, I found a headstone and then was able to find. I think she was like the second cousin three times removed in England, and I was able to write to her and say, "I found the headstones of one of your family members," and here you go. And what's the response when you when someone does hear this? They're usually well. They think it's odd, <laughs> for one thing, <laughs> that I've just kind of randomly written to them. But they're usually very happy. The, the reaction I get from people where I have found family members' headstones is the same as I've received all day today. People are happy with what I'm doing. They understand why I'm doing it. Because for me, these people built Canada. They built Hamilton. Some of them traveled here. Um, and, you know, they led very short, busy lives and worked very hard for us to be where we are. And so most of the, the reaction I get uniformly is that the people are very, very happy with what I'm doing. I think it's a great, and, I, and, and I'm glad. I mean, I'm not doing it for the, the applaud, um, but I'm glad that people enjoy it and appreciate it. Well, there's a respect factor, though, there of the people who are, have passed away. Yeah, 
when you have cleaned them off then, when you've identified them, when you've got the picture and put it online, do you prop the headstone back up? I cannot touch them. It is, um, I can't touch them. I, I, I don't know if it's a bylaw or if it's a universal law, but unless family members request headstones to be repaired or maintained, they, they aren't. Uh, I cannot touch them. And even if I could, I probably wouldn't. I have no experience in that, and I wouldn't. If you start to move them, these things have been underground for, you know, 100-plus years, sometimes, you know, uh, one and a half centuries. The likelihood of them staying intact as I move them is probably zero. Are I would they... imagine they would start to snap in half. Okay, but if you, if you leave them, at, well, do they not then just in time get re-grown is... over? That is absolutely what will happen. I've even ones that I've uncovered last year have started to grow over again, which is why I think putting them online is useful. Because at some point I won't be doing this. You know, fifty years from now, these headstones are going to be back underground, and unless somebody else comes along and does what I'm doing, they will literally disappear into the earth. Which is one of the reasons I'm putting them online. Otherwise, these people are gone forever. Is there any, does the cemetery or does anybody put any, at least if we can't prop them back up, is there a new marker or something small that's put there above the ground that would say, hey, there's a stone underneath here? This is it. What I'm doing is the only, only uh, sign. Is that, that odd? There at all. Is that odd that once you found them and done the work and you've, that we, that somebody from the, I mean, even the cemetery people wouldn't just come and have a little rock or something, you know, like a, a, they could get them. I don't know how they get them made, but something to say, Hey, someone's lying here. I, I wish they could, but it's a, we, we, the city of Hamilton maintains a lot of acres of cemeteries and has a very small staff of people doing it. I, you know, I was one of those people who assumed that there was an army of people maintaining our cemeteries, but it really isn't a big group of people. And they, you know, you'd also have to take into account the safety of the workers. If you're going around with a double-wide lawnmower and you don't know that there's a some sort of little marker there and you hit it, you're risking you're risking injury. So I understand why they wouldn't do that. And I'm hoping that I've cleared these enough that somebody can see them. I can't do anything about the grass growing over it over a, a long period of time, but I am hoping that there's a sufficient enough uh, surface area that they can see that they would avoid doing anything. Mike, I, I got to be honest with you. I have not, that I can recall, ever uh, done a search to try and find in a Hamilton cemetery where someone is lying, uh, even a current person. Is there, if you drive up to a Hamilton cemetery right now and you say Jane Doe is my aunt and I haven't been there can you are they able to point exactly where she would be buried if she is listed on the records uh yes and and you know that in a lot of cases they would simply say they would tell you roughly where it is and then you go down to the grounds crew and you say I need to know where this is and they know you know they know every inch of those places at least on the surface and so if you were to say Jane Smith is my aunt the the office would say, yes, she's in, you know, AA5, plot 26. Well, instead of wandering around, go over to the grounds crew and say, AA5, plot 26, they will point you in the right direction. And so, so are it you... is possible. And that assumes that, though, that, that assumes that the people about whom you're asking are recorded. Most of the headstones, well, actually, all of the headstones I found so far are not recorded with the Hamilton Cemetery Office. But that was the second question is now that you're finding them, you're putting them on your website or on the Grave Finder, Grave, uh, I've forgotten, Find a Grave. Find a grave. Yes. Is it also being recorded with Hamilton Cemetery so the ones you found are actually now 
going there as well so people in the future could find them? Uh, they have not recorded any. Uh, I've never actually provided them with the info. I literally walk in there, ask them if they can look up a name. They look it up. I don't find it. That's it. That's the entire discussion we have. It's never occurred to me. And I don't want to start making work for people, which is one of the reasons I clean up after myself. Apart from being required to, I do it anyway because I don't want to uh, make work for the employees there. And I don't want to start providing lists of names at the office. I have no right. I mean, it's not like I don't have the authority to start handing them this information. If they ask me for it, absolutely, I'd hand it all to them. But I'm not going to expect them to do it for me. Is there anyone else? We only have a minute or so left here. Is there anyone else that you know of around here? I mean, obviously, there's a name for this. As I say, it's a, a taffophile. Now, that's not yep. necessarily taffophile. Someone who has an interest in graves, right? It's not someone yes. who's necessarily yeah. doing exactly what you're doing. I wouldn't know what to call myself. <laughs> but have you ever heard of anyone else doing this, though, either here or elsewhere? Uh, you know what? The, re- the reaction I've got on, on with Facebook and on The Spectator, there's a number of people who do it for fun and for family. As far as anybody doing it for random strangers who existed 150 years ago, as far as I know, I'm the only one doing it. So how, just for fun, when someone asks you then to explain what you do, how do you describe your hobby? What, what's the, because I'm sure you've whittled it down now to a reasonably concise description. What do you say? Uh, I say I poke around the ground with a knitting needle until I find a firm object. I scrape away the dirt, and sometimes it's a headstone. That's it. Unless I can come up with a better term or a better description, that's what I say. I poke the ground until I find something, and then I uncover it. <laughs> but clear, just to be clear, grave exposer, not grave digger. Yes, exposure, yeah. <laughs> Grave uncover. Grave uncover. Grave digger has a whole different connotation. You don't want to it go does. there. It does. It is, uh, it is really a, uh, a very cool story, and it's a really neat hobby, and I have no idea. I mean, even though you explain it, I still, it's, it's an amazing thing that you've stumbled upon this. Uh, you mm-hmm. probably would admit that it's kind of a funny, weird, odd thing that you stumbled upon it, but man, now that you have, it's a, it's a really cool thing. It is, and it's it's odd that I've continued doing it, uh, but it is a relaxing hobby, and if anybody happens to be wandering around the cemetery one day and see me with my big white hat, I welcome the company. Mike Brown is his name. You can read more about him in the spec today. Uh, again, great story by Sarah Farr. Uh, Mike, thanks for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for calling. It's, uh, it is not something, I, I don't go to cemeteries, so it's not something I would have ever done, but the history, you know, we're going to be talking about a, a story about world history later in the show. It's about history. There is so much of it in the cemetery. And I had no idea, maybe you did, I didn't, I had no idea that a whole bunch, we don't even know how many, I remember in the story, there's no idea how many of these headstones have toppled over and just disappeared, that we don't even know they exist anymore. They're underground. And, and keep in mind, headstones that we put on graves today tend to be what four inches thick like they're big stones we're not talking about those we're talking about the ones that are they kind of look like how you would imagine the tablets from the ten commandments look like like they're you know an inch thick maybe and they're stone and they're an arched doorway look you know what i'm talking about the ones that you would find really old cemeteries they're really thin ones and they just fall over and then the grass grows over them we don't even know they're there so it's it's a very neat thing go go read the story it's um it's worth taking a look at and also he has a facebook page 
I can't tell you what it is because it's too long. But if you go to the story at thespec.com, find the story, there is a link to the Facebook page, and there's actually a video of him doing this. Just today, he took a video of what he does if you're interested in finding out really what it's all about. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. It is Halloween, which means I am dying to find out what my next guest, what kind of costume my next guest is wearing today at work. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. What did you go to work as today? I actually, uh, somehow Phil Perkins, our news anchor, tried to convince us to actually dress up or do something, so I brought a wig. Um, <laughs> I didn't, and, I was busy, I couldn't see you at six, so. Well, I didn't wear it. Here, here, oh. Why. Here, let me tell you. 11 why. o'clock. Well, no, I don't even think about 11 <laughs> o'clock. Or maybe, I don't know, now, now you've planted a seed. But like, Phil was Marty McFly. Now, he wore like a, what I would say is like a ski jacket with suspenders that you really couldn't see. Sounds more yeah. like Urkel. Yeah, kind of that, but I mean, for the ski jacket, with the kind of ski jacket he had on, you couldn't really see. He had the funky watch on, which wasn't a big deal. He had the glasses on, which anyone could wear. So I figured if I, and Taz, of course, was wearing nothing, or at least Really? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what was she going as? Well, I mean, she was wearing nothing in terms of costume. Ah. You know, so I figured if I threw on that wig, I would look like the class clown, so I backed out. Well, I, I want to say, I remember back on an old episode of WKRP when Les Nessman decided he had to wear the curly blonde wig. I would love to see Bubba doing the weather and sports wearing the curly blonde wig. <laughs> well, it may happen. It may happen at 11. You're going to drive ratings, man. Everyone's going to tune in just to see it now. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. There, there'll be mystery. <laughs> you know what would have been the scariest costume to wear today? A Vegas Golden Knights goalie outfit. Well, they are 11 games into their first season, and they're already through three goalies and onto their fourth through injuries. This yeah, is the, this is something? bizarre. I mean, and considering the outstanding season, I mean, yeah. eight win, eight wins out of ten games. How is this happening? I have no idea. I mean. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. There's no question it's smoke. They've had a lot of home games. They have had a lot of soft games on the schedule. But I've just never seen any team at any level burn through three goalies with injuries that have taken them out and put them on the injured list ever, anywhere. I've never seen this. I mean, maybe over the course of a year, I don't even remember, but in 10 games? Yeah, it, it's hard to believe. I mean, and the goaltender that went down uh, yesterday... Um, Oscar Dansk. Yeah, I mean, he was just named NHL Player of the Week. <laughs> well, it, yeah, I'm not even going to make a bad pun. I was thinking about it, but I'm not even going to make a bad pun. But no, it's, I mean, they're calling up guys now who have never actually played hockey before. They, they, they found them in a casino and they said, hey, you want to try hockey? Good, you're in net. I mean, that's, it's getting stupid. Uh, hey, let me uh, jump from something really silly, which that is, although it's, you know, they probably don't think it's silly. They probably think their goalies are cursed or something. Um, to something really, I don't understand this at all. Now, first of all, as I set this up, I have no idea what your thought on the play itself was. So, uh, in the NFL on the weekend, Joe Flacco, quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens, is running for a first down, does what he's supposed to do, and does the feet-first slide. Uh, Maybe a little late going down, but he is clearly going into the feet-first slide, and Kiko Alonso of the Miami Dolphins comes in, and absolutely obliterates Flacco with his shoulder or forearm or both to Flacco's head, knocks his helmet off, rips his ear halfway off his head, I make knocks him loopy. I mean, he was he looked like he was in space zone, 
Um, first of all, what was your thought on the hit before we get to the, the follow-up? Well, of course, when you see, with the first time you watch it, I mean, of course, any type of big hit like that on a quarterback, especially with the helmet popping off, uh, it, it looks violent. Um, you know, football is a violent game by nature. Of course. Um, and so when, of course, I, when the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, oh, I mean, how dare he? Like, what is Alonzo thinking? But it only took me one replay to say, wait now, first of all, Flacco was extremely late in his slide. Normally, quarterbacks don't even approach, I would say, in terms of it, they don't even challenge DBs. Once they see someone or what there's, you know, there's someone within five yards, he does, you know, quarterbacks, Tom, I mean, all the veteran guys, which Flacco is, they do just that, you know, ugly hook slide. So there's, I mean, by those times, by the time the quarterbacks go down, the defensive players are generally still on their two feet. I mean, it, but in the situation where Flacco was running, he made no attempt to run out of bounds, and he went down, and I thought, he did slide late. So if that's the case, and you're going to run like that, and we've seen this with the likes of Cam Newton, who has been crying a lot for the last couple of years about getting more fouls, you are a running back, and you will be you will be treated as such. And that you know, I agree with that point. That if you're a running back, you know, running backs get hit in the head every down. They do. I mean, they because they drop their head when they go in, and they they go head to head. But we see so often that even a marginal, unintentional touch to the head of quarterbacks, like a, a swipe where you're not even hitting the guy, but your hand makes contact with his head, gets called for a penalty. Yeah. And the reason is, or the point is, that the NFL and the CFL have both said, you know what, I, we understand that maybe you're not intending to hit the quarterback in the head, but you can't even by accident. And I just, I, what I'm finding hard in this one is that they announced today that Kiko Alonso is not going to be getting suspended, not even a single game for this one. And while I agree with you that the slide was a, a little bit late, I also think that Kiko Alonso could have a, altered his, his path to the head a little bit, enough that he could have not come in and brought the hammer down as he did. I just don't understand in this case how the NFL, after the lawsuits, after the settlements, after the billion dollars, after the CTE talk, after how we're all about the safety of our players, that they can't, that they wouldn't in this case even give the guy a game, even as a, even as a visual to say, look, we are, we understand that maybe this was really difficult to avoid, but we can't have this in our game. Well, I don't think I see. It. See, I can't see how that could happen, Scott. First of all, though, the unions are extremely powerful, and they would recognize the situation. And this one would go back and forth. I mean, first of all. I mean, we had the Danny Trevathan hit, which, you know, to me was the unbelievably um, crazy hit uh, with the Chicago Bears and Green Bay Packers earlier this year, where he led with the crown of his helmet and blasted a player with his head. Yeah, a player who was head. tied up and unav- unav- couldn't avoid it. He was being yeah, held by another player. And he led with his helmet, so it was head-on-head contact. Now, that was originally deemed a two-game suspension after uh, the appeal process. It was brought down to one. And it was... And- for those who didn't see it, it was vicious. It, it was, was vicious. absolutely it was vicious. It was the absolute type of hit that both leagues are trying to get. In fact, all leagues in football at all levels are trying to eliminate. This, this one was different. It really was. And I don't know how Alonzo could have changed his path. He came in there and hit him with his shoulder. When you watch it carefully, 
It's a clean hit from shoulder to head. And there's nothing he could have done. Flacco, I hate to say this because you hear this a lot in hockey when guys are up against the boards. He invited the contact. And that's eight. And you can't just use him as an example to say, you know what, because of, you know, uh, CT. This is football. This kind of stuff is going to happen. Now, the quarterbacks, yes, they are protected, unlike anyone else on the field at most times. But at this time, and, and again, I reacted the first time I saw it, but it took me one replay to say, eh. I wouldn't suspend him. I think this is nothing more than a fine at the very least. I, I'm, I, will, I will give you that in light of the Trevathan thing from earlier, but here's this is exactly my point. If the NFL, going back to that one, to me the Trevathan one should have been four games minimum. Four games. You clearly intended to injure another player, and there's no way you can make an argument that you didn't. I don't care what excuse he comes up with. As you described, he went in full speed, lowered the top of his helmet, and blasted the guy in the ear hole, a guy who was not moving because he was being held stationary by another player. If you give Trevathan four games, you can then give a game or two, or probably a game at least, to Alonzo to say, we're not accepting this. But once you've basically given Trevathan almost nothing, You've left no room to, to give guys with a less egregious hit anything. I can only use your language here, Scott, and that's we're not accepting this. We're not accepting what? Like, this is football. T. Flacco was late. The defensive players, I mean, the way it goes now, as defensive players, and I'm just looking at the whole overall spectrum of being, you know, a defensive player. You can't touch a wide receiver. You can't do this. You can't do that. Flacco invited the contact. He was he would have been as uh, he was playing like a wide receiver or a running back running with the football. And if we saw that same hit, with the exception of the explosion of the helmet, which of course makes it look even more grand than it actually is, it, it, it's a, it, we would just say a great hit if it was anyone else other than the quarterback. But the quarterback invited the contact in this situation. I rarely stick up for the quarterbacks in this situation because they're so babied in, 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 in all leagues nowadays. And I get it. They're, they're the, I mean, people, people don't go, see the, go to pay big money to see you know, Kiko Alonso or some linebacker. They go to see the quarterbacks. They are the big-name, high-powered, high-money-paid players. Uh, but in this occasion, and I very rarely say this, he invited the contact, and there's and he kind of has no one else to blame but himself. It is interesting. I, I from a much grander when you use the word grand from a grander from a bigger scale, the bigger picture that I'm thinking of with this one is the NFL settled. How much was the settlement they had to give the retired players? Like two oh, billion dollars. I mean. I would, and it's still not enough. And it's, I mean. Well, and I'm looking at this thinking, you know what? So that covered generation whatever of NFL players up to this point who are now retired. You know that at some point there's going to be another class action with the next generation. And I'm just looking at this and I'm thinking, I'm shocked the NFL didn't give a suspension if only. And your, your point, I, I get your point, but if only from a legal perspective so that when they get dragged into court again down the road, and the lawyers pull this one out and say, see, you still don't care. And the Trevathan one, you still don't care. I just, I expected that the lawyers now would have basically told the league, any contact to the head 
even if you think it's somehow warranted or excusable, you got to give them something just to show. But there's there's no rule in the NFL that says if there's contact made to the head that that it's a it's it's a it's a to the quarterback. Yeah, you can't touch the court. Well, not suspendable. You're right, not suspendable. No no rule. There's no rule in the NFL rule book that I know of that if you make contact with the head, you are going to be suspended. So not suspended. You're right. You're right. So so it's a penalty on the field, but it's not necessarily a suspension. And he was penalized for unnecessary roughness for the hit. And that's as far as it really needed to go in that situation. There really wasn't any more to, to do in that situation. I said, maybe in terms of, uh, you know, post-incident, you know, uh, disciplinary action, there would be a fine or something like that. And and I was thinking the fine would come for the exact reasons that you are talking about, about protecting the quarterback and that kind of thing. But I really thought to myself, if nothing happens in this situation, I, I, I'm okay with it. I, I, this is football. People, guys get, guys get blasted. And in, in this situation, and like I said, we hear this in hockey all the time, where sometimes guys are up against the boards and they get crushed. And when they do their, you know, when they do their, the NHL does those little videos and stuff like that and explains why a guy got five games or why a guy's not getting any games, there are times when people invite contact. And in this situation, and it's rare, Joe Flacco did. If you watch the run at full speed again a second time, like I said, the very first time, you're like, oh, whoa. You know, you, 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 of course, because of the explosion of the hit, and you can even hear the crack of the, of the hit. But when you watch it a second time, which those guys obviously do, you know, when they're going to make a determination if there's a fine or some type of suspension to be levied, he really didn't do anything wrong. All right, we've got a couple of minutes here. Changing topic, we need more than two or three minutes to handle this one, but I'm going to take a shot at it anyway. Uh, this weekend, Canadian sports legend George St. Pierre makes his return to the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Now, there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily fans of the UFC, that's fine, but they all know who GSP is. He's one of the UFC's biggest stars. He is a guy who has been named the Canadian Athlete of the Year in the past, He's been on a three-year sabbatical slash retirement that he's coming out of. The UFC right now is, I would argue, staggering a bit because many of their stars have either retired, gone away, are injured. Can this guy... Or in trouble with the law. Or in trouble with the law. Can this guy save the UFC where it is right now? I think he needs to win a series of fights if this is the case. And as it stands right now, Scott, I, I, I don't know. And I know Bisbing is, you know, not one of the younger puppies. The guy he's fighting on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, the guy he's fighting. It's one of the older guys. I mean, both of them are, you know, amongst the older guys in the league that have fought, you know, many wars. And I'm wondering if GSB has it in him. Can you come back? I mean, like, and maybe there's a certain amount of rage, and, and of course, he's, I'm sure he has prepared himself in his body immensely and incredibly to, to get to this, you know, what these guys do is so incredible, you know, and putting your, your body and life on the line, I, I will even go that far. But can he come back at this age and be what he, he was once before and beat a guy? Like, I mean, I think he would, he would normally, back in his fighting days, would take care of a Michael Bisping. But I even thought in his last couple fights that I thought that George wasn't the dominating figure that he once was. Can he actually come back and be effective? You, that kind of sport, that kind of fighting is one that always strikes me that once you've left it, 
it seems that w- once you've stepped away from it, you are allowing your body to kind of let down a little bit because it's an uncomfortable thing to train every day and to deal with that every day. And again, I don't know how you get back to that point. I don't. And, and it was the same with boxing. There's a reason why so many guys who retire from boxing and then get the itch to come back a couple years later don't do well. And I'm convinced that it's because your pain tolerance, your willingness to absorb pain, all that kind of stuff, once that's faded away, I think it's really hard to get that back. You know, and, and for me, that's what I think. I mean, I know he's not the greatest person out there. To me, that's what makes Floyd Mayweather one of the more outstanding boxers of our era, was the fact he was able to come back. And even still, in his last fight, he you could tell this was the last fight he needs to fight. Right, like well, when you make three hundred seventy-five million dollars, yeah, it probably is the last fight you need to fight. Well, I'm, I'm just talking about in terms of like he he <laughs> he looked vulnerable. He made a person that fought his first boxing fight look okay at yep, times. Yep. Right, where normally if he if those two ever Conor McGregor and Mayweather ever fought in the ring, he he would lick him in in, in a you know in a hurry. But even still, so when I look at this, what George Saint Pierre is doing, I'm really concerned for his health. First of all, I'm concerned about, is he a hundred? I mean, to go in the ring in the UFC, you've got to be not a hundred percent in. You've got to be a hundred. You've got to be sold out. Absolutely. You got, and, 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 like, I mean, we'll see. You and I have seen some of these fights. So many things can happen to you as, as you know, physically. And we don't even know about mentally later. You know, like, does he need the money? Does he need the fame? That one little rush of fame. That's see, I think yeah, we got to go. But I think that that's part of it. You just you you miss that rush of being in the cage and the fans and the cheering and everything else. I don't even know if it's the money. It's the it's the glory of doing it. We got to run. Hey, uh, yes or no? World Series ends tonight. No, I don't want it to. <laughs> Bubba O'Neill, uh, tune in tonight at eleven. To see Bubba wearing a blonde curly wig for Halloween tonight. <laughs> Got to promise me on the air. Right now, you're going to wear it tonight. I'm going to. I'm going to try my best. Come on, lock it in. Eleven eleven oh one. Turn on the TV. Thank you, sir. Appreciate right. it. Have a good night. Always a pleasure. That is Bubba O'Neill. Do it. Well, tune in. Oh man, I am going to rake on him if he doesn't wear the wig tonight. He's got to wear the wig. You're going to tune in, and Bubba, this will be the first time you ever see him with a full head of hair. I mean, listen, I'm in the same ballpark. I can uh, I can poke fun at it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Tonight isn't just Halloween. Uh, for many people it is, but it isn't just Halloween. It's also a very significant day historically. 500 years ago today, Martin Luther, not to be confused with Martin Luther King, that's, he was named after Martin Luther, but not the same guy. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to Wittenberg door, which is something some of you may have studied in high school and promptly forgotten about, or something you never knew anything about, something you didn't study in high school. It may be something you've never heard of before. This could be new to you. This could be old news to you. Anyway, that act began what is now commonly referred to as the Reformation. Now, this is clearly, Martin Luther was a monk. This act clearly has religious connotations. This had a thing, this was to do with the church. However, it has also, in a broad way, gone on to much bigger things than even that and has impacted the world in a lot of ways beyond the doors of the church. Dr. David Haskell is an associate professor of digital media and journalism, as well as religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. 
He joins me now. Uh, Dr. Haskell, thanks for doing this tonight. It's my pleasure, Scott. Happy Halloween. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, Martin Luther was really inconsiderate to not think that 500 years down the road that we'd be distracted by Halloween on his big day. Uh, exactly. I didn't think, he probably didn't realize at the time that there was going to be a celebration at all. He was probably happy just to get away with his life. <laughs> probably true. Uh, before we start into this, a little bit of background. Who was Martin Luther? I know he was a monk, but who was he? Uh, so he was a monk. Uh, now, he's Catholic. This is a thing that we have to remember, that the people uh, who were the Protestant Reformation leaders were actually Catholic to begin with. And uh, so he's a priest and a monk, and he's also a scholar. Uh, he's a biblical scholar, and uh, he was upset with the, what he saw as the excesses of the, the Catholic Church at the time. He was part of a very austere religious order, the Augustinian monks, and these are the kind of guys who would sleep on just wooden uh, slats. I mean, they were really rough-going fellows. They really deprived themselves of things. And so uh, the excesses of the hierarchy in, in the Vatican and of the Pope really upset him. And also some other things that were going on doctrine-wise upset him. And uh, eventually his, his offense at these uh, doctrinal, what he saw as really uh, detrimental doctrinal moves, caused him to take action, and that's where we get the 95 Theses, which are 95 revolutionary opinions that he had, which were trying to correct the Catholic Church. Okay, and before we get to those, he nailed them on the door, the Wittenberg door, it's always said. What is Wittenberg? So that's just, uh, it was a town in Germany, and um, it's actually, it was a castle door that also served as a chapel, and this wasn't a particularly revolutionary act, just, it was what you did if you wanted to have a debate. So if two scholars wanted to debate something, instead of uh, posting it on an op-ed or, you know, um, going on the Internet, they would go and knock some piece of paper on a door, and they'd say, here's what I think, let's debate. So he was really just doing what was typical. But then it really, really caught fire. And what happened was there were a lot of people who had similar ideas to Luther, who said, you know, we've got to reform the, the Catholic Church. And they started printing off his 95 Theses. And that's really interesting because one of the things, as I understand it, that really, that made this different from a lot of other things that may have happened at the time is this aligns kind of with the advent of the printing press. So for the first time, you have the ability for this to really be disseminated broadly. Absolutely. And, and what we could say, it was almost like the YouTube of our day, mm. right? If you, if you wanted to... to spread your, your ideas widely, the printing press was the first way to do it because it had movable type and you could put off multiple copies and it was cheap. And what Luther did even, he put it in the language of the people very often, not always, but very often. And when you've got the regular folk reading, well, that one is going to impress them. And two, his ideas were pretty compelling. So that worked out. Uh, in fact, if we look at, at the numbers, he was, I think it was three times uh, the, the pamphlets he was putting on were three times more than the Catholic writers of the day. So he was overwhelming them with his message. So, uh, a couple things. First of all, it never, somehow, it never dawned on me until today when I read this from someone, it, and I don't know how I missed this, that the root of the word Protestant is protest. Yeah, Somehow right. that had never occurred to me that that's where, so it was the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, and the protesters, the Protest, Protestants. That, uh, uh, who, you learn something new every day, but that, that's what I learned today. But anyway, so they pro, he's protesting 
these things that he disagrees with uh, within the church. And, we're gonna, and there was a, an impact within the church, and there's an impact much broader than that as well. In the, inside the church, what impact did this have? Well, first of all, he, his main issue at first, his main issue at first was a uh, doctrinal switch that was um, implemented at the upper levels of the Vatican, and it was this idea of indulgences. And indulgences, uh, roughly speaking, were this piece of paper you could buy from a church official, and it would allow a loved one to get out of purgatory. And, and a lot of people, um, you know, they, they were worried that their loved one would be suffering in purgatory. So they thought, if I can pay just a little bit of money, it will alleviate their suffering. And now Martin Luther looked at this and he said, well, you know what? I don't, I don't think there's a biblical basis for this. And he was concerned that uh, the upper levels of the church were using it simply as a device to make money. And in fact, I mean, if we look at it truthfully, they were using the money from indulgences to, to redo St. Peter's Cathedral. So they really <laughs> were using it as a money-making technique. Uh, I don't think that they, I think that the Pope at the time and, and the people under him who were implementing this, I think they truly did believe they had the right to do this. This was just sort of their theological thinking at the time. But certainly, Luther was right to say they are using it uh, for financial gain, too, and, and not for the sincerest of motives. And this obviously had a—he caught some traction. It caught a lot of traction with this, Luther did, because this— in a lot of ways, splintered the church, that you had the conservatives, uh, no, the, the Catholics, pardon me, the Roman Catholics, and you have now the Lutherans. But that also then, the Protestant side splinters and splinters and splinters, which is why we have so many different denominations today. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, what you see is the first Protestant denomination comes forward, and it is the Lutherans who are following Luther, uh, although there were other people who were instrumental in his theological direction as well. But then you had, uh, after Luther, you had Zwingli. Now, the Zwinglian church really didn't take off. We don't have a church of Zwingli now, but he went on to influence others. And then the next biggest group to break off were the Reformed movement. They called themselves Reformed. We call them the Calvinists, or we might even, in, we've got the, uh, the uh, uh, Christian Reformed is, is the way that we will refer to them in Canada. And then some of the Christian Reformed, they broke off in Scotland, and they became the Presbyterian uh, and, you know, it goes on and on. You can sort of trace all the Protestant churches back to uh, one of these early movements. But even non-religious historians look at this and say, you know, yeah, while this started as a uh, a shot, if you want to call it that, a, a concern, a, an, Im, an, an issue with the church, this has impact in our society that exists today that went well beyond the doors of the church. Oh, Absolutely. We can really trace this whole idea behind uh, freedom of conscience and also individualism, these, these cherished, cherished Western ideas to the Protestant Reformation. Here we have Luther saying, I am going to say that the, the Pope and the official church cannot be the ruler of my conscience, but I, through God, am the ruler of my conscience. I mean, that was revelatory. And, and that was something, he talks about uh, solo fide and solo scriptura, so he's saying faith alone and scripture alone. But what he's saying is that an individual, through the study of scripture, can make his own decisions. So let's take that away from the scripture part. He's saying individuals have agency. And that, that Western idea has percolated, and it has 
solidified since then, and we trace it all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. So this was really one of the first times that some individual stood up and challenged the accepted orthodoxy and the groupthink and said, no, you're allowed to have a different point of view. Well, we, we did have what we'd call proto-reformers before this, uh, people like uh, Wycliffe and, um, and John Huss out of, uh, uh, he was in oh, Bohemia, but, but these guys weren't successful. What we see with Martin Luther is he had a lot, he had the perfect storm. He had the printing press to get his word out there. He also had the political support of the German princes, who at the time were getting a little bit tired of paying so much money to the Pope. So it was in their best interest economically to support somebody who was saying, you know what, the Pope's not so important. So, so he had this perfect storm, and plus, plus his ideas were timely. We see the people, uh, people who were in the feudal class, they're saying, you know what, I don't want to be treated as a second-class citizen. And here's a guy who's saying that God thinks that I am as important as, as the king. Uh, Luther talks about this idea of the priesthood of all believers. And in that is this idea that everybody in God's eyes is equal. Now, that's been a Christian idea all along, but it seems to be something that needs to be rediscovered again and again. Well, it also, and I was reading this today, that uh, some historians uh, trace the advent of capitalism, in a sense, and you just touched on it. At one time, the church and the monarchy owned near, not everything, but a lot of what was out there, a lot of the land, a lot of the whatever— and when you now believe that all things don't have to go to them, all things don't belong to them, you can then start to imagine how a capitalist system would develop. Absolutely. And there's a very famous uh, theory put forth by uh, a sociologist, an early sociologist, Max Weber, and it's actually called the Protestant work ethic. I mean, that's yeah, sort of... We all know that one. Yeah, we've all heard that. Right. But the idea was that when people began to think that their particular role was a holy vocation. Even if they were a farmer, it's a holy vocation. Even if they're uh, a hat maker, it's a holy vocation. Suddenly, you So it matters. It matters. And so that makes a difference. But then you map to that the Calvinist idea. So again, the Calvinists were the people who came right after Luther under John Calvin. They said, listen, we want to show uh, that we're good Christians by living modesty, modestly. But at the same time, we want to show we're good Christians by being really hard workers. So you've got these people working very hard, making all this money, but not willing to spend it. So what do you do? You reinvest it, and suddenly the economic uh, situation of those people and their community grows. And what, uh, what Max Weber, the sociologist, did, he said, look, I'm going to show you where Protestantism was and is. It actually has a stronger economic basis and more GDP. There is also, beyond capitalism, this had impact on, uh, well, when you are allowed to think freely, universities, as I understand, began to flourish, music, culture. There were other things that didn't just have to then fall into the, the fall into line, as it has always before. The individuality allows for different things to flourish. That's very true. Now, we've got to give the Catholics credit because... I mean, early on, when we look at the University of Bologna, the University of Paris, these are our first universities, they really were places of, of pretty good diversity of opinion. And, and it was the Catholic Church that was setting that up. But what we see with Protestantism is, again, a greater emphasis on individuality and going back to the sources. So they're not going to trust, they're not going to trust conventional wisdom. 
They're going to say, we need to figure this out. So it does push us toward what we see in the scientific uh, revolution and empiricism and moving on to the Enlightenment. Really, a lot of historians, and I think they're right, they trace those ideas to the Protestant Reformation because they were saying in the Protestant Reformation, listen, think for yourself, go and get the evidence. It's naive, I think, is it not, to, to suggest that if Luther had not done this, at some point in the last 500 years, somebody would have come forward with this idea. I mean, it, 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 someone had to be the one to do it, though. What was the view, though, with, historically, what was the view about those who did break off and did follow this initially? Were they heretics? Were they seen as people who were horrible people? Or I mean, how, what was the impression of those who followed Luther? Well, definitely, they were, uh, they were considered heretics, and, and heretics was the worst term you could use at the time. Remember, if you were a heretic, you were subject to death. Uh, by law, you could be burned at the stake or drawn and quartered or any other kinds of terrible punishments. So being called a heretic was equivalent to being called uh, a racist today or a white supremacist today. I mean, it, was, it vilified you right on the spot. It, it, it gave you whatever opinions you had no longer had any quarter. They were beyond the pale. So for, for Luther uh, to be called that, he certainly was uh, in a dangerous position. But, but interesting, if we look at him, he was still a man of his time, because uh, despite having that label put upon him, it didn't make him more tolerant to others once he broke away. I mean, we still we see that movement. The movement in the West has always been a gradual, incremental movement. Uh, it didn't come right away. He didn't suddenly become completely enlightened and say, well, I'm going to respect the differences, uh, differences of all other people. The seeds of that idea were there, but it would take you know, another 200, 300 years before they really become more full-blown in the Enlightenment. We only have a minute or two left here, but you had a piece that was, uh, in, it was in The Spectator this week. I think it was probably also in the uh, Waterloo Record. I'm not sure for those, but... It's an interesting position you've taken because you, you talked about, you know, how the Reformation started and it was the, the idea of breaking away again from the group think and, and, and individuality and being allowed to have a different point of view. You're actually pointing out that we are seemingly heading almost back a little bit towards that these days, that you're not really supposed to, you just touched on it, you're not really supposed to have views that veer too far off the accepted politically correct platform now. I would say, yeah, in the article that I wrote, uh, again, in the spec and in the uh, record, um, I'm I'm making the point that it seems to me that even though we're half a millennium on, we've entered into a new period of what we call political correctness, but it really is an elite orthodoxy. And if you go against that orthodoxy that's being established by our federal government or certain members of the academy or the mainstream media, some in the mainstream media, you're going to be punished for it. Uh, for instance, there, there are many things that we're not allowed to talk about, and there, there are ideas that you must, must accept or you're going to be said to be beyond the pale, similar to being called a heretic. So I really do see parallels. It's an interesting one. It is uh, surely in the time between then and now, though, there have been other situations. Has it always been a straight line, or have there always have we always sort of pulled back towards that? It seems my guess would be in history we've always had that thing that we try to break away from the homogeneity or whatever of thought. Or is this really the first time in five hundred years that we're that close again? 
<laughs> no, no, no. You're absolutely right, Scott. It's, it's, always, uh, it's always a pendulum that swings back and forth. But the thing that we, we can say from history, whoever is in power, they want to make sure that they can solidify their hold on power. And the way that you do it is to make sure that you don't allow competing views. And right now, the, the, the accepted view, uh, which is in, incredibly politically correct, um, but I, I'd call it it's informed by cultural Marxism, which says we don't want to have diversity of views because it will contradict our accepted view. So we, we've seen this again and again in history, and it's always got to bring, we've always got to get back to the middle. And the only thing that can ensure that we have this balance is if we have freedom of expression, where we have a diversity of opinions and we say, listen, I might disagree with what you say, but I'll fight the, to the death to allow you to say it. But it requires a pretty brave man or woman to stand up against that. Well, I, and we do have our Canadian Luthers. We do. And I think that right now we're seeing people like Jordan Peterson step forward. And that guy, uh, he, listen, he... He's the U, the U of T professor who's been in the news quite a bit. Absolutely. I mean, he, he was assaulted, uh, and by assaulted, I mean he was brought, uh, he was pilloried in the press. He was um, really uh, scandalized by members of his own university community because he said it all began with a, a gender issues um, thing where he said, listen, I just don't think there is the scientific evidence to say that there is this multitude of genders. And he said, because it isn't scientifically backed, and the guy's a psychologist with a really strong research record, he said, I I don't want to be compelled to use words related to monikers to represent different genders that I don't think exist. Well, he he was brought forward, or or, I'm sorry, his university challenged him with a letter that was threatening. Um, He's had... Uh, posters posted around where he lives, uh, but, but the man, very bravely, similar to Martin Luther, has continued to say, you know, I cannot betray my conscience. And, and when you actually listen to the things that he has to say um, and not listen to the reports, you, you'll see that he actually is just, he's talking about classical liberalism. He is, he is completely espousing what we one, at one time said, this is what made the West great. As I let you go, what did ever happen to Martin Luther? What was the, did, did he live? Did he survive? Was he, what became of him after this? Yeah, he, uh, he got married in fat. <laughs> well, I guess yeah. it's the way to go, right? Yeah, and he was quite happy. Dr. David Haskell, Associate Professor of Digital Media and Journalism and Religion and Culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. Great job tonight. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, fascinating topic. 500 years ago today. So back in high school, when you remember hearing that, yeah, Luther nailed 95 theses to Wittenberg door and you paid no attention to that because it was high school history and all you were trying to do was get a good grade and you didn't really care. Well, there's the explanation all these years later of what that was all about. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.